The message today is adopted into the family. Uh, at the beginning of your book, you'll see the lessons that we will be looking at in the weeks ahead. And the entire theme is finding your value in God. Finding your value in God. So then let's move into page 13. Finding your value in God includes six lessons, or seven lessons, seven sessions rather. And the, uh, the first one that you're going to do today is adopted into God's family. Uh, session two is freed by God's forgiveness. Third is saved by God's Son. Fourth is strengthened by God's power. Five is equipped with God's gifts. And seven is cherished in God's eyes. Hmm? Oh, it's six. Yeah. There's a typo there. Okay, question number one on page 13. When have you felt like you belonged? When have you ever felt in any particular situation in your life? When have you ever felt that you like you belonged? Ever went anywhere and you felt like you didn't fit in? What occasion can you remember where you went somewhere and you felt you felt right in place, felt like you belonged there? Anybody? When you've been received by all in a gracious manner, okay. Can anybody remember an occasion that happened for them? <coughs> you went somewhere, you didn't know what to expect, and you were, you were, you totally felt like you belonged there. You didn't feel, your first time there, and you didn't feel like you were straight, you felt like you belonged there. Didn't feel out of place. In his church. Okay. And I, I can recall some occasions where I've been uh, in God's presence, in the God, presence of God's people, and you felt that way. You didn't feel out of place. Anybody else? Okay, the point. Page 14. We are loved by God, our perfect Father. That's the point of the entire lesson today. We are loved by God, our perfect Father. Now I know sometimes we don't feel like we are loved. Alright, and that's why you can't go by feelings. You gotta go by the facts. The fact is, God is a perfect Father, and he, loved us, he loves us with a love that only he can have for his children. But regardless of what we are and what we have done, God still loves us. Just like a parent loves a child, regardless of what that child may do or think. That love is perfect and that person is loved. Okay, let's look at the uh, Bible Meets World on page 14. We can have someone read that, please. My wife, Tammy, and I once visited an orphanage in Santana, India. We were taken aback by all the orphans, often orphaned babies needing attention. I remember Tammy placing her hand on the screaming child and saying, Jesus loves me, this I know. Immediately, the child became perfectly still and silent. 
She locked eyes with Annie. It was a God moment. Several years later, our daughter and son-in-law became foster parents. Their first little boy, Jeremiah, taught each of us so much about God's love. When the day came for him to go to his new home, we all shed tears. Jeremiah did not choose his earthly father. His father chose him. Much in the same way, we have always been chosen by God the Father. He desires to adopt us into his family. We don't need to remain as orphans, crying and hoping for the love and acceptance of our Father. Instead, we are loved by God and can receive from him an immeasurable gift, adoption into his family. Okay. Let's look at the passages then and see what the Bible has to say about adopting. God adopting us into his family. First John chapter 3, uh, verses 1 to 3, on page 15 of your study guide. Look how great a love the Father has given us, that we should be called God's children. And we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it doesn't know anything. Therefore, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. Okay, now notice verse 1. Verse, verse 1. In his love, God the Father makes us his children. We don't belong there. He makes us his children. It's God's choice, not ours. Notice that John's purpose for writing his first letter was to warn his fellow believers against false doctrine that led to false living. Living that denied the power and the truth of the gospel. And we still have that today. In John, in John chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, what John does is he emphasizes that Jesus' followers reflect his purity. They reflect God's character, God's ways, God's nature. And so John encourages readers to remain pure by reminding them of the Father's love and also their status as his children. Normally when a person, a child misbehaves, the reflection goes back on who? The parents. Boy, couldn't those parents do a better job with that child? The parents always get the blame. And so whenever God's children misbehave, guess who, gets, guess who gets the black eye? God, our Heavenly Father. And you would hear expressions like, boy, if he or she's a Christian, I don't want to be one. Simply because of how we behave. Now look, John says, look at how great a love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. As creator, God is in a sense father of the human race because he created everything. He has a universal claim of paternity. Universal. However, in this particular sense of fatherhood, 
It's limited. It's limited to those whom God chose. And that while God may be father of all humanity through creation, his fatherhood does not resolve either the problem of separation from God due to sin or the just punishment due to all people for their sins. For Christians, however, God is so much more. He's not only our father in the sense that he is our creator, he's our father in a spiritual sense through our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we can legitimately pray as Jesus taught us, our Father which art in heaven. That, can be, that, is a, that is a true prayer for the child of God. According to what Matthew tells us in the, in the model prayer in uh, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9. And this is an emotionally charged image John was trying to convey to those that he was writing to in his day and to us as well. He wanted to challenge them to live in purity and in faithfulness because of who loved them, who chose them. Okay, let's have someone read the uh, paragraphs on page 16. Look at how great a love the Father has given us. This is no ordinary love. As we'll see throughout this study, God's love is unconditional, undeserved, unmerited, and unselfish. As people, one of the hardest things for us to do is to love unconditionally. Even with our families, our ability to love freely can be impacted by the hurts or disappointments we've experienced. Let's be honest. It's easier to love when that love is returned. Our affection is unconditional. But God isn't like that. Regardless of what we've done, or even if we don't love him at all, he loves us. Here's more good news. Your worth as a person isn't based on your performance. It's based on God's love. You may feel unworthy of that love, and you are. But God makes you worthy. In this world, people may disappoint you. Your spouse or family members may not appreciate you. Friends may forsake you, but God will never disappoint or abandon you. He is a friend to the friendless and a father to the fatherless. I love what John wrote in verse 2. We are God's children now. Satan doesn't want you to remember that. One of the enemy's greatest tools is doubt. If you're unsure of who you are, you'll be uncertain of where you should be and what you should be doing. But your salvation and security are grounded in who God is. As a Christian, you are a child of God, and growing as a Christian means becoming more like your father every day. This process will be complete when you see him face to face. Therefore, don't think God could never love you. You can never go so far that the love of God can reach you. You may feel like God couldn't possibly love you because of your past sins or problems. Your present circumstances might make you feel like God doesn't love you anymore, but that's not true. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. How should we respond to God's love? The answer is simple. In light of his unconditional love, our only proper response is unconditional surrender to him. Okay, good. Now notice what the second paragraph in that uh, passage is say. As people, one of the hardest things for us to do is love unconditionally. Isn't that true? 
That's one of the hardest things for human beings to do, is to love unconditionally. Even within families, our ability to love freely can be impacted by the hurts or disappointments we have experienced. There are, family, there are people in families who still are not speaking to each other because of some rift that occurred somewhere along the line. But those who they refuse to speak to still love them regardless, unconditionally. And so it's one of the hardest things to do. And then it's going go to say, let's be honest, it's easier to love when the love is returned. Isn't that so? Yeah. Okay, you love me and I'll love you and everything will be kosher. Everything will be fine. Easier to do it that way. Our affection is conditional. But God isn't like that. Regardless of what we've done or even what we don't, or even if we don't love him at all, he loves us. Isn't that fantastic? To think that no matter what you've done, or even how you treated God, he still loves you nevertheless. He loves you when you are unlovable. That's fantastic. Know anybody like that? I think, I think we measure our love we measure God love on human people. On human terms. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. If we love, if you love me, I love you. And that's how I first accept that. You know, like, mm -hmm. God love me in spite of what I do. You know, if you have to fully understand His word to realize it. So. Mm -hmm. Question number two, page 16. What about God's what about God's love in this passage really captures your attention and why? What about God's love in this passage that we've just read that really captures your attention and why? That's the thing that I was saying now. The same thing as you said. Yeah, really love me. I think that's in spite of who I am. You should love me. Mm -hmm. He loves us in spite of ourselves. And why? Because his love cannot be compared to His love is completely different from the love of human beings. Okay, his love is incomparable. Okay, there's nothing you can compare to it. Anyone else? There is an activity on page 17. It says, God our Father. Use the space below to record words, phrases, or images that come to mind when you think of the word Father. When you think of the word Father, what words, phrases, or images come to mind? Wonderful, gracious. Awesome. Awesome, okay. <laughs> Wonderful, gracious, awesome. Okay. Hmm? Protection. Protection? Okay. Care? Devotion. Hmm? Devotion. Devotion? Okay. Fathers and parents are devoted. Okay. Any other words, phrases, or images? When you think of the word father. Assurance. Assurance? Okay. Provider. Provider? Jehovah Jireh, our provider? Okay. Next question, have you, been a, have you been blessed by approaching God 
how have you been blessed by approaching God as your heavenly father? Think of any blessings you may have been you may, you may have received as a result of approaching God as your heavenly father. Numerous, eh? Okay, you don't know where to start. You was into? Okay. Okay. Okay, but but Eskim is talking about God's dependability, knowing how we can depend upon Him when everyone else fails us. Okay, having established the greatness of God's love in the verse, three verses of the passage, John tackles a heavier subject when he goes into verses 4 and 8. What do you think that heavenly subject is? Uh, sin. Heavy subject. Let's look at it. Verses 4, verses four through 8. Page 15. We're looking at the passage just now. Page 15, verses 4 to 8. Everyone who commits sin also breaks the law. Sin is the breaking of law. You know that he which is being, so that he can make sin, take sin, take away sin, and there is no sin in him. Everyone who believes in him does not sin. Everyone who sins has not seen him. Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who commits sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God was revealed for the purpose to destroy the devil's work. Okay. Now let's let's pause here as we try to get an understanding of the false teaching that John was responding to that caused him to write this epistle because he was responding to something. There was a lot of false teaching going on during that time, and this this passage is John respond John's response to the false teaching that was going on. John knew false teachers were saying sin was no big deal. And people are saying that today. So that's nothing new. They taught this view because they believed that the body was evil and separate from the soul, which was good. These teachers claim that, we do, that what we do in our physical bodies has no effect on our spiritual well-being. Some even said Christians should, should sin so they could experience more of God's grace. People are saying that today too. To reinforce his point, John reminded his readers that God the Father had sent Jesus so that he could, so that he might take away sins. So, how absurd it would be for a disciple of Jesus to say there's nothing wrong with continuing to sin. Such a claim denies the actual reality that Jesus died in order to take away the awfulness of our guilt and slavery to sin. And so when we look at verses 7 and 8, we notice John was also concerned about the false teachers who were deceiving his friends. 
So he laid out the facts in basically some simple terms. The one who does what is right is righteous. Simple fact. The one who does what is right is righteous. The one who commits sin is of the devil. Now, could it be any clearer than that? Absolutely clear as mud, right? Jesus used a metaphor to describe the same thing when he said, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. Is that so hard to figure out? Good tree, good fruit, bad tree, bad fruit. That's the example that Jesus used in Matthew chapter 7, verse 17. Again, Jesus stressed that, gen that genuine believers produce righteous, godly, spiritual fruit. Unsaved people can't do that. The lives of unsaved people reflect the author of sin, the devil. The lives of saved people reflect the author of righteousness, Jesus Christ. So we see how clear it is for us to be able to distinguish who belongs to God and who doesn't. Is it difficult to do that? No. Jesus says, you know the good tree by the good fruit and the bad tree by the bad fruit. Besides coming, coming to set us free from the guilt and slavery of sin, Jesus also came to destroy the works of the devil. And so the devil doesn't really get to do whatever he feels like doing. You could say that God, Jesus has him in check. And so God, Jesus came to destroy the devil's works. And that is his sinful deeds that dishonor God, the Father, and his Son. Jesus destroyed the works of the devil's actions by removing the guilt of sin from all who trust him as Savior. It's Jesus who removes that guilt. Not a psychologist, a psychiatrist, or even a counselor. See, the counselor, the true Christian counselor relies on God anyway in his counseling process. So God works through the Christian counselor to help a person be relieved of the guilt that they're feeling because of some sin or sinful activity that they've committed in their lives. And so our guilt can destroy us and render us ineffective in serving God and others. Jesus came to cut the chains of guilt that hold us enslaved in the devil's darkness and to bring us out into his, what the Bible calls marvelous light or glorious light. Now we're Verse 6, the passage, it has the potential to cause confusion or even anxiety for, for us as we read it. Let's look at the passages on page 18. Let's have someone read those passages, those paragraphs on page, one, on page 18. Verse 6 can be surprising at first glance because all people, including all Christians, struggle with sin. So, was John saying that if I sin in any way, God has turned his back on me? That he has withdrawn his love and forgiveness? In the original language, the phrase, does not sin, is a pretense tense verb denoting continuous action. In other words, a child of God does not keep on committing capital sin. A child of God cannot continue to live in sin and enjoy it. 
without any design of repentance. God doesn't let his children get by with their sin. Rather, he convicts, warns, and disciplines his children in order to help them move forward. See Revelation 3.19. Jesus lived the perfect life we could never live. He died the death we all deserve, which gave us life instead. It was the great exchange. He took our sin and gave us his righteousness. Why did Jesus do this? Love. Satan decides to steal our understanding, kill our joy, and destroy God's purpose for our lives. The devil seeks to devour us like a roaring lion. Liar. See first Peter 5 Our enemy is actively fighting against us to discourage us, distract us, and restore the truth. No person is exempt from the temptations of the adversary. Even Jesus was tempted. If the devil tempted the very Son of God, he certainly is not afraid to tempt you. Feeling overwhelmed yet? <laughs> Don't. Remember the truth of verse 8. Jesus delivered us from the power of sin. The reason the Son of God came was to destroy this work of Satan in our lives. And that's how we're able to stand with Jesus and resist the temptation to sin. It's all about his love for us, for you. Okay, now notice John continues to an even stronger argument to urge his readers to stop sinning. He is he's stressing this with all that he can muster up. Notice he says, everyone who remains in him does not sin. Just in case his readers were not clear on his point, he added that everyone who sins has not seen him or known him. Did John mean that unless we are perfect and never sin, we are not true disciples? No. Nor did he mean that we lose our salvation if we sin after we are saved. That's not what he means. The key to understanding John's point is to examine the tense of his verbs in the Greek language. The tense used in verse 6 implies a continuing action or a habit. In this case, habitual acts of sin. In other words, continuing to make sin a sinful practice, a habit in our lives. John was describing a person whose life reflects a continuing pattern of sin. A lifestyle of sinning, if you wish. Who makes sin a particular sin or sins a lifestyle practice. His point was that genuine believers don't continue to sin in the same old ways or to the same degree that they did before they were saved. Get the point? He's doing all that he can to stress that after you're saved, if you sin, it doesn't mean that you are in the category of the bad fruit and the bad tree. Okay? That's the point that John is trying to make here. Question number three on page 18. Why do we tend to treat some sins lightly? Why do you think we tend to treat some sins lightly? You know, <laughs> I don't want to say something. Somehow we don't realize what it is. 
That's true, and that's a cultural yeah. thing. It's a societal thing. Uh, where people, one of the things that people take lightly is stealing. You know, they take something that belongs to someone else and don't think anything of it. You know? You know, I, I look at the, some of the, the vendors, the guys, you know those guys who sit on the side of the street and sell the, the little fruits and canaps and stuff? Whenever I see those guys, I, sit, I think to myself, boy, I wonder who trees stole those from. <laughs> you know, because I know all those guys that are selling those stuff on the street don't have those trees. You know, the guys selling canaps. Where did he get those canaps from? You know? <laughs> See, there you go. Medication. Yeah, in the market. And selling it in the market. You know. Mm. Anyhow, okay. <laughs> Can we list some things that are glossed over today as light sins? I've uh, we mentioned one already that's stealing. What are, what are some other sins that are gossiping? Huh? Gossiping, okay. Backbiting. Huh? Evil thoughts. Okay. And those are some of the things that are glossed over lightly and they become acceptable. Even though they're sins, they become accept acceptable norms in today's culture. And so that answers the question, why do we tend to treat some sins so lightly? Because we don't see them as more impacting than some of the more, what we call, grievous sins or harsher sins uh, that are judged harshly. Question number four, what message of hope is found in these verses? What message of hope do we see in the verses that we've just read? No message of hope? Jesus was tempted. And because of that, that's the 
Okay. Forgiveness is available. Okay, and there's another hope. The Son of God is revealed. Verse 8. The Son of God is revealed, is, is revealed for this purpose, to destroy the devil's works. That's a great message of hope right there. Okay, to destroy. We know that somebody is working on the devil's evil's work, evil works. That's a message of hope. Okay, um, look at the last passages now. We're going to conclude verses 9 and 10 and see some important distinctions between God's children and the devil's children. And this is distinguishing passages. Verses 9 and 10, page 15. Everyone who has been born Okay. Well, I notice what Woodbridge Nine says. John continues. John continued the theme he introduced in verses chapter 2 and verse 29. Everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Continuing theme. In this case, everyone who is born of God does not sin. Again, we need to remember the significance of the verb tenses John used. He wasn't talking about being sinless, but about not continuing to be controlled by sinful desires. Our new birth in Jesus means that we are new people in our hearts and we are new people in our minds. John explained the reason for this newness when he wrote, because his seed remains in him. We don't continue sin because God's seed lives in us. Because our power, because of the power of the gospel and the Spirit's transforming presence, we have a new spiritual power. The believer is not able to sin, that is, to continually obey the devil. Now the believer's focus is to honor and obey God, or it should be. There's more. Not only does Jesus' disciples want to obey God, obey God, he or she is able to obey God. According to Philippians chapter 2 verse 13, our focus is different. Our words are different. Our actions are different. We are different from who we would have been without Jesus. So you see the difference that having the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives make. It makes a world of a difference. John concluded in verse 10 by repeating his emphasis from verses 7 and 8. The proof of who is really a child of God can be found in how he or she live their lives on a day-to-day basis. So you look at how the person lives their lives and you can determine who they are, whether they're really and truly a child of God. The opposite is also true. Those who aren't children of God 
those who still live enslaved by the devil also reveal their true character by their lifestyles. Probably John emphasized this point to warn his readers about being deceived by false teachers, as we see in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 7. Though believers can sometimes recognize false teachers by errors in their doctrine, or even by the way, or, or even a better way to recognize these kinds of people by their lives, their value, speech, and behavior also gives them away. Okay, let's look at the paragraphs on page 19 for further clarification. Someone read that passage. When you were born physically, you were born with a sinful nature. That means the most natural thing in the world for you to do was to sin. But when you were born again, you received a new nature. A Christian is a new creation. Jesus takes away your sin and the Holy Spirit takes up residence in your life. The word remains in verse 9 means your life in Christ is everlasting and cannot be reversed. Once you become God's child, you will always be his child. While we break fellowship with him and we sin, our relationship with him cannot be broken. We have a permanent connection with the Father. Still, nowhere in the Bible does it teach that you can walk down an aisle at church pray a simple prayer, and then go live a life of sin. A tree is known by its fruit, and Christians are known by the way they live with Christ and for Christ. As Jesus said, we must produce fruit consistent with repentance. Make no mistake, there are only two kinds of people in the world, children of God and children of the devil. Mm. Whose child are you? Verse 10 provides a litmus test for answering that question. Love. God is love, and we are to be like our Father. When we are adopted into God's family, we become more and more like Him. The more we experience and are filled with God's love, the more we will demonstrate that love in our lives. Showing love is a key sign of our connection with the Father. So don't be afraid to love out loud. Okay, now notice some key points in that passage we just, those paragraphs we just read. When we are born spirit physically, you were born with a sinful nature. That means the most natural thing in the world for you to do was to sin. But when you are born again, you receive a new nature. It's one point we need to remember from that passage. The next key point is, Make no mistake, there are only two kinds of people in the world, children of God and children of the devil. Whose child are you? Verse 10 provides a litmus test for answering that question, love. Another point to remember. And then the third uh, key point we want to remember from that is God is love. And we are to be like our father. When we were adopted, when we are adopted into God's family, we become more and more like him. You can look at a person who has been a believer for a long time and see that they belong to God. You can see something in them that reflects God the Father, and that's the way it ought to be. Question number five. 
is having a new nature from God more about obeying commands, showing love, or something else? Explain. Anyone want to give a crack at that one? Showing love. Showing love, okay. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. If you have? Love. For who? Okay. Love one for another. Okay, so love is the key there. Now notice the point, the point of the whole lesson as we go to the, the final uh, passage or point is we are loved by God, our perfect Father. That's the point at the top of the page at the beginning. Now let's look at live it out. How do we live out this particular lesson that we've gone through today as we close and wrap it up? How will you respond to the reality of God's love? This is page 20. Consider the following suggestions in the days to come, or even the weeks and months to come. Number one, embrace the love of Christ. If you have not accepted Christ as Savior and Lord, there's no better time to accept Him into God's family. Talk to someone in your class or group or, or read the inside cover of this book. So there's an opportunity there if you haven't made that decision yet. And then the, third, the second point is show love through words. Watch for opportunity. Watch for an opportunity this week to tell someone how he or she can experience the love of Christ. Choose to stand strong in the love of Christ, even in a culture that often opposes your faith in Him. In other words, be courageous. And look for that opportunity. And the third one is Show love through actions. Let the love of God overflow out of your life into the lives of others. Look for active, specific ways to demonstrate God's love to others. And that's one way people will know exactly who you are, a demonstration of your love. Okay, as we wrap it up, notice the transition uh, on page 20. Our world is filled with spiritual babies who need to experience the love of their father. A love far greater than any of us can comprehend. How will you respond? So we know how we ought to respond, right? As we go forward this week, we have a challenge to make known the love of Christ through our actions, and our words. That's our challenge for this week. The question is, will we accept it?